Hello, thank you for listening to Rapid ONG for Medical Students. My name is Professor Justin Clark, and I'm joined today by Dr. Lynn Robinson to discuss subfertility. So, Lynn, how long do couples have to be trying to conceive before they are considered to be subfertile? Well, subfertility is defined as failure to conceive after regular unprotected sexual intercourse for one year in the absence of any known reproductive pathology. Subfertility is common and affects around one in seven couples. Primary subfertility is a term we use for couples that have never been able to conceive, and secondary subfertility refers to couples where the woman has previously conceived, even if this pregnancy ended in a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy, and they haven't been able to conceive since. So what are the main causes for subfertility? Well, before answering that question, it's worth considering how conception occurs. In order to conceive, you need the correct hormonal stimulation for an oocyte, and that's a female egg cell produced in the ovary, to mature and then to be released at ovulation. Once ovulation has occurred, you then need sperm, that's the male reproductive cells, to reach the egg so that these male and female reproductive cells can fuse together, combining genetic material, and they form a zygote. This process is called fertilisation and it takes place in the fallopian tube. Once the fertilised egg begins to divide, it's called an embryo, and it then needs to travel to the uterus and implant. Subfertility can be caused by any failure at any stage of this process. So inability to get pregnant can be because of both male and female factors? Yes, that's correct. Male factor, usually problems with the quantity or quality of sperm production, accounts for around 30% of subfertility in the UK. In the female, ovulatory disorders account for 25% of subfertility cases, tubal damage for further 20%, and the uterine or the peritoneal disorders in 10%. In 25% cases, there's no male or female cause identified, and we refer to this as unexplained subfertility. You should also remember that more than one cause may be present. So how do we decide what the problem is? Okay, well let's take each factor separately, starting with ovulation disorders. The majority of women who give a a history of regular menstrual cycle will be ovulating. However, we often perform a blood test to measure the level of progesterone on day 21 of the cycle, and this confirms that ovulation has occurred. This is because following ovulation, the corpus luteum secretes progesterone to maintain the endometrium for potential implantation. You can also take a hormone profile looking at the luteinizing hormone, which we refer to as LH, and the follicle stimulating hormone, or FSH, and estradiol for those with regular cycles. For the women who have irregular cycles or no periods at all, we should also measure prolactin, testosterone, thyroid function tests, and androgens. A day 2 to 5 FSH level of more than 10 international units per litre suggests that they may have poor ovarian reserve as the cause for subfertility. A better measure of that, which we've used more recently, is anti-malarian hormone, or AMH, which is secreted by the resting ovarian follicles. So I think I'm right in saying if the progesterone is low, that's indicative of the fact they're not ovulating. And if that's the case, can you induce ovulation with medication? Yes, we can. But first, you need to assess the cause of the anovulation. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS for short, may be the cause if they have two out of three of the following criteria. These are firstly a disturbed menstrual cycle or no cycle at all, secondly the presence of clinical or biochemical signs of androgen excess and that's like hirsutism, acne, weight gain, high LH levels and androgen levels. The third criterion is a polycystic appearance of ovaries and ultrasound scan and this means the ovaries are enlarged and contain multiple small follicles. Okay well I've heard of polycystic ovarian syndrome um, but can you treat it? PCOS can be treated by weight loss alone if overweight or, if necessary, ovulation induction with clomiphene, which is a drug type known as a selective estrogen receptor modulator 
given at the beginning of the cycle to simulate FSH and LH release from the pituitary gland, which in turn stimulates the ovary. FSH injections can also be used. However, these hormonal interventions carry a risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and also of multiple pregnancies. An alternative is to stimulate ovulation without those risks, and that's ovarian drilling. This is a surgical procedure, which is keyhole laparoscopic procedure, and several small holes are drilled in each ovary. Okay, so that's PCOS, but you mentioned other causes of anovulation. Yes, there are other causes, and these include hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism, hyperplactinemia, and hypergonadotrophic hypogonadism. Gosh, that sounds complicated. Let's start with hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism. Okay, well, this occurs when the pituitary gland is failing to produce FSH and LH in, in order to stimulate ovulation in the ovary. This can be caused by excessive exercise or anorexia, or it can actually just be idiopathic. The initial treatment is weight gain, as this can trigger resumption of the menstrual cycles. But if this is unsuccessful, then assisted conception is the next step. Okay, so what about hyperprolactinemia? This is caused by excessive secretion of prolactin. The FSH level is often normal, but estrogen levels can be suppressed. The treatment will usually involve dopamine agonists such as bromocryptine or cabagoline to reduce the levels of prolactin, which helps to restore ovulation. Another important hormone produced by the anterior pituitary gland is thyroxine, and this is because hypo or hyperthyroidism can also interfere with ovulation, and the treatment of the thyroid disease to restore normal thyroid function is very important prior to conceiving. And the last cause you mentioned hypergonadotrophic hypogonadism. Okay, well this is also known as premature ovarian failure and it occurs when the ovary fails to respond to the FSH and the LH from the pituitary gland and this results in excessive secretion of the gonadotrophic hormones. Unfortunately, the only fertility treatment available for this is IVF using donor eggs. Okay, I can see now how failure to ovulate is an important cause of female subfertility. Another important cause you mentioned earlier was damage to the fallopian tubes. I imagine this prevents fertilisation because the sperm cannot swim up to meet the oocyte. Yes, that's correct. Um, damage to fallopian tubes may prevent the fertilised embryo from reaching the uterine cavity, resulting in an ectopic pregnancy. The most common cause of tubal subfertility is pelvic inflammatory disease, and the most common cause of this is chlamydia. The patency of the fallopian tubes is most commonly assessed by a test called a hysterosalpingogram, where the radiographic dye is injected through the cervix into the uterine cavity and then it's seen spilling into the abdominal cavity if the tubes are patent. And what happens if the tubes appear to be blocked? In that situation, the next step would be to perform something called a laparoscopy and dye test. Here the tubes are visualised at laparoscopy and we put methylene blue dye through the cervix into the uterus and the tubes are inspected under direct vision for fill and spill of dye. If there's no filling of the tube seen, then this suggests a proximal blockage. In this case, tubal catheterization can be tried to unblock the tubes. But if the tubes partially fill but appear blocked at the distal end, then a new opening in the tube called the salpingotomy can be made, and this is then stitched back so that it stays open. This procedure works best in patients where there's no other obvious factors contributing to subfertility, though. Is surgery the only option, then, for tubal fracture infertility? No, if, if the tubes look severely damaged, the in vitro fertilisation or IVF would be the best treatment if they can't be unblocked surgically, and that's because the assisted conception procedure bypasses the tubes. The success rates of IVF are improved if a salpingectomy or occlusion of a damaged tube is performed beforehand, though. Okay, you also mentioned uterine factors for infertility. What are these? Well, these are various, but 
there's some pathologies such as fibroids, especially submucous fibroids, endometrial polyps, or intrauterine adhesions, and these can all cause subfertility by distorting the shape of the uterus, so there's either a problem with implantation or with recurrent miscarriage. Some congenital malformations of the uterus will also contribute to subfertility, and these are, can be diagnosed on ultrasound or hysteroscopically. And can these structural anomalies be treated? Yes, submucous fibroids, polyps, septums, intrauterine adhesions can be removed hysteroscopically to improve fertility. Myomectomy for intramural and subserosal fibroids can be performed either laparoscopically or by laparotomy, although the evidence for its improving fertility potential is less robust than that for the cavity distorting submucosal fibroids. So we've covered the female factors, uh, but what about the male partner? Well, the, the key initial investigation for the male when seeing a couple with infertility is the semen fluid analysis. The male masturbates to provide a sample, and the seminal fluid volume is normally around 2 to 4 mils, and a very small volume would then raise the possibility of retrograde or backwards ejaculation. The sperm concentration should be more than 15 million per mil, and we'd expect the motility to be greater than 32%, and a normal appearance of sperm should be present in more than 4% of sperm. If a semen analysis is abnormal, then this could be treated with a type of IVF called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI for short. Uh, well, what if there's no sperm in the sample? If there's no sperm present, we call this azospermia, and this needs to be investigated with blood tests for hormone levels and karyotyping, which is chromosomal analysis. The treatment's generally surgical sperm retrieval, and then ICSI is then performed with any sperm retrieved. If, if no sperm is retrievable, then the only option would be donor sperm with IVF. You've mentioned IVF as a possible treatment for both female and male factor infertility. What exactly is IVF and what does it involve? Well, in vitro fertilisation, or IVF for short, typically involves ovarian stimulation with FSH injections and ultrasound scan monitoring of the developing ovarian follicles. The oocytes achieve maturation with an injection of human chorionic gonadotrophin, or HCG. This mimics the LH surge in, that would happen in a natural cycle prior to ovulation. <clears throat> the oocytes are then collected transvaginally via ultrasound-guided procedure, and they're fertilised with the sperm in vitro, and that means outside of the body in the laboratory. The fertilised eggs are then incubated for up to five days, and this depends on the number of embryos formed and their quality. One or two embryos are transferred into the uterine cavity via the cervix in a small catheter in day two, three or five post-egg collection. Again, this depends on embryo quality and number. Okay, and you mentioned earlier ICSI, something called ICSI, where you inject a sperm into the, directly into the egg. Well, yes, this is essentially the same process for the patient as IVF, but it, it differs from conventional IVF because, as you alluded to, the embryologist selects a single sperm to be injected directly into the egg instead of fertilisation taking place in a dish where many sperm are placed near the egg and you can actually get more than one sperm fertilise the egg. This is used um, for men that have poor sperm quality or often for patients where there's been a failed fertilisation with IVF previously. The success rate of IVF or ICSI is related to the age of the patient, but in women under the age of 35, the clinical pregnancy rate is around 40% per cycle on average. The main risk is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which most commonly occurs in women with PCOS. Okay, and the final thing I want to ask you is regarding embryos themselves. Can these be tested before they're transferred in case they're abnormal? Well, yes, for women who've had recurrent failures with IVF or recurrent miscarriages, pre-implantation genetic screening may be recommended. 
and this involves an embryo biopsy for chromosomal abnormalities. For couples with a high risk of passing on a particular genetic disease, then pre-implantation genetic diagnosis could be suggested. This is when embryos are biopsied for specific genetic disorders. These processes do increase the chances of normal embryos being transferred and hence the likelihood of a successful pregnancy and live birth. 